This conversation was recorded on November 15th, 2014. This is episode 45 of Biblically Speaking, a conversational question and answer show with two guys from Millard Community Church in Omaha, Nebraska. If you need a root canal, go to a dentist. If you want some fresh produce, try a grocery store or a farmer's market. If you want the truth, that should be found in the local church. Millard Community Church meets every Wednesday night at 7.30 p.m. for Bible study and every Sunday morning from 9.30 a.m. We gather in Omaha, one block north of Q Street and Oaks Lane, which is approximately at 127th Street. You're welcome to come and practice your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ with us. Enjoy the show. So you've said many times to me that kind of a pivotal moment in your understanding of the scriptures was around the judgment seat of Christ. Is that is that true? Yes, it's true. And what was the realization that you came to? I have a I have a doctrinal journey that I could document a little bit. Maybe this is a good time to do it. Sure. Uh, and, but it doesn't start exactly at the judgment seat of Christ, but it starts around the subject. My doctrinal journey began at Philippians chapter 3. It sort of began by what I didn't know more than what I did know. I mean, the thing jumped off the page at me in Philippians 3. Attaining to the resurrection of the dead. Yeah, where, where, yeah, where the apostle says that I may know him, verse 10, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. And to put that in context, I think it was before I actually drilled down on this language and realized that that was a different phrase, a unique phrase. Mm -hmm. I was sitting under a ministry where there was this confusion about the resurrection, actually. I, I detected it. I was in a young person church, you know, it was all young people. The older guy that that really helped me get into it. I, I didn't. I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have got involved in this church if it wasn't for an older man in the area of my father's age, whose daughter I grew up with and went to school with. I thought all these young people together, my age and even some younger, and I was a young fellow myself. You know, I was in the twenty-five year old range. I had already checked out on my peers. I'd gone through that. I, you know, I was hanging around with the boys and being a, as Rush Limbaugh calls it, a young skull of mush, being having my thoughts more or less directed by my college professors, a bunch of smart guys from good schools. And I realized, ah, that hasn't served me very well. I found myself going down the wrong path. I had a three-year kind of journey to get away from extraordinary radicalism, which is really what I'd embraced, left-wing stuff. And uh, the beginning, by the way, the culture that's in power today, beginning of the homosexual dominated culture. I got very depressed when I saw that happen. It started me on a serious reconsideration of the way I was thinking of things. One thing led to another. I turned to the scriptures, received Christ as my savior. And then about a year later, I came across some zealous young believers on the college campus, and I was a little skeptical of them, but the fact of this older guy whose daughter I knew growing up, I knew this man, mm-hmm. 
he lent kind of a stability to the thing where I thought, well, this is probably okay as he's there. It's probably all right. So I waded in. By the way, that man suffered the splitting of his family to the end of his death. Hmm. To the end of his life, I mean, till he died. He died not too long ago. But back to where my thoughts were, I, I actually have a pretty good ability to listen to a spoken message and retain it. That's the way I got through school relatively easily is I didn't, I didn't take notes in class. I quit taking notes. I started just paying attention. And when I could track somebody's thoughts as they progressed a lecture and listen to him develop the thought, I could follow that very well and kind of own it. Do you know what I'm talking about? This is how preaching should be to the hearer. You should mm-hmm. be able to, if you can't understand what a preacher's talking about, either you're not, you don't know how to pay attention or he's a bad preacher or both. You should be able to follow that thinking, sit back and assimilate it. And the thoughts, as you look at the scriptures that are being referenced, actually you own them. And instead of quoting somebody when, when they're all done, you can regurgitate it through your own thought processes yeah. and, you, you understand this because I know you do this very well. You can hear a message, and then you synthesize it, and you'll yeah. put it in your own words, and you don't say according to this or according to that. Right. The way I think of it as internalizing it. Yeah. One preacher told me this is instead of the ant that stores everything away and brings it back with note cards, this is the bee who processes the knowledge through his own system and puts mm-hmm. forth honey instead of bringing out the food that's stored. He produces his own food. And, of course, this is what should happen. Every believer has this ability. Yeah. So I was experiencing that, and I was synthesizing what I was hearing, and I needed it to fit. I needed it to fit. I have this, and I think we all have. You know, we need it to fit. Too yeah. often we give up on that whole thing, and we just go, I'll never get this. Uh, mm-hmm. Let me see. What did he say? And we just try to memorize it and, you know, pass the test and get, get out of it. Uh, but I was synthesizing, and I was listening to this guy, and he would talk about conditionality in the Christian life. And it made sense to me that there's things conditional. But every time I'd hear him, it was like, what isn't conditional? Almost everything. And then one day, I was certain that I heard him teaching that the resurrection of the body was conditional. Hmm. And I, I went to him and I said, uh, are you saying... At what I think that you're saying, that some believers are going to have resurrection bodies and some aren't? And he was, oh, no, 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 no. Uh, then he just started insulting me, which I thought, that's not an answer. You're just insulting me? I mean, you come back with some ad hominem? But I, I was being a respectful older guy. So I was trying to listen to him. And finally, I kind of stung him with this question. And the question was, do you believe that the judgment seat of Christ is a historical event? Because if we're all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ, and it's a historical event, which I never thought of it any other way, then are you saying some are going to be there with resurrection bodies and some are going to be there just spirit only? I mean, what are you talking about? Mm-hmm. That, that was my follow-up question. So I thought, well, okay, if he'll commit to me that the judgment seat of Christ is a historical event, then I'm going to spring this on him. Well, maybe he saw me coming, but he just blustered away and said, well, some think that the judgment seat of Christ occurs with the time of your death. Others think such and such. What difference does it make? And I thought, golly, what difference does it make? It seems to make, at the moment, for me, this is making all the difference in the world. I don't know about you, but 
So I said, well, I, I think it makes a big difference if it's a historical event or not. Mm. I, I did not even think I was opening up a can of worms at all. But this actually undid this whole, this guy. And I walked away from that conversation thinking that this, this is a guy who's, who doesn't really have it together, who doesn't really have his own theology together. Why am I listening to him? Mm-hmm. I did get away from him, by the way. Another another story at another time. But this still didn't leave me with an answer to why is Paul apparently worried about the resurrection from the dead, and what are the conditional aspects of the Christian life? Mm-hmm. What do they pertain to? Again, God leads you, me. He has led me historically, and He will lead you know any of us into truth. Right? That's the Holy Spirit's work. Uh, not to reveal truth, we have that, but to navigate. Much of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives is to navigate us through the Scriptures and using our experiences, the laboratory that is mm-hmm. our life, yeah. to to bring to light important questions that we have about the Scriptures. That's what makes the Christian life interesting, no matter where you are, because almost wherever you are, you can navigate the Scriptures, right? I mean, even if you get thrown into prison... At least still today, they'll give you a Bible, and you can navigate your way through the Scriptures. Right. After all, God used prison to preserve Paul so that he could write the Scriptures, right? That that, the Jews would have killed him. God protected him when he was in prison. All right, well, so this particular thing bothered me, and I wandered one day at lunch into a Christian bookstore, and uh, I found a book that a guy had asked the bookstore to buy several copies of this book for his Sunday school class and then decided not to use it. And I even looked that fellow up, by the way, because the book was called The Entrance into the Kingdom by Robert Govett. And I used to recommend that people look at that book, but I don't anymore because it's difficult reading and there's a lot of things in there that I really don't agree with. But it started to open up my eyes Basically, in John chapter 3, where you see the difference between seeing the kingdom and entering into the kingdom. Right. That reemphasized to me the critical importance of the judgment seat of Christ. And as I probably left out in this narrative, I firmly held that that was a historical event. Okay, let's, let's drill down on that. Okay. We see the judgment seat of Christ in Second Corinthians 5. Correct. Which you quoted earlier, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body, according that he has done, whether it be good or bad. And Romans 14.10. Do you have that one up? Why dost thou judge thy brother, or why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Okay. Why is that a historical event? Well, the scriptures would have said we shall each stand before the judgment seat of Christ if it was not altogether. The scriptures are carefully written about each and all. Sometimes Mm -hmm. the translations aren't done well, so that where it says we will all receive our reward, it it is actually each. Mm. Sometimes the translation's not right. For example, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether good or bad. Okay. Okay. So in that case... Vernacular-wise, you could say those are the same thing. That that would mean the same thing in in this particular case. That, that the all and the everyone or the each one? Sure. But where it says that all will receive reward, sometimes, sometimes people say all receive reward. You see, 
all that are given out to judgment seat are positive rewards. But the word reward needs a modifier to be positive. Right. So this one has a modifier, but the modifier is good or evil. So it's two different kinds of the same thing. So because it's all... Because it's all appear, because we all will be made manifest. That rules out this idea of when I die, I'm judged, and then when you die, you're judged. And let's talk about receiving. Let's go further than simply that word. Okay. Let's also go about receiving. How will you receive your reward without your resurrection body? That is uh, inconsistent with the forward motion of the judgment seat of Christ. What do you mean by forward motion? Well, the whole concept of being evaluated for for the conduct of your Christian life is that your entrance into the coming kingdom of the to rule and reign with our Lord Jesus Christ. Mm. And it is clear from this passage that the reward is received, the payback is received at the time of judgment. Not I die, I have some kind of spiritual assize mm. that I realize apart from my resurrection body that my reward is given, and it doesn't include anything to do with my resurrection body. So why couldn't you just get your resurrection body right away as well? I die, then I get my resurrection body, then I get judged. You die, you get your resurrection body, then you get judged. So, Well, well because the resurrection is, I assume you're asking a facetious question. Well, I would just want you to explain because, that. Yeah, because the resurrection, to... the resurrection is explained as the dead will rise first. And those who are alive, it's one event with two aspects. Okay. That the dead in Christ will rise first. We who are alive and remain will be translated, will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. So if I die and get assessed at that time, then, then, the, then the resurrection of the dead and the translation of the living did not occur simultaneously. Gotcha. So that can't be. The resurrection of the dead, according to this mystery revealed in the first Corinthians fifteen. Right. Is that the dead in Christ first rise and that we alive remain in the twinkling of an eye are also changed. So, as I say, these are two aspects of the same event. And if that judgment needs to correspond to the way we are in resurrection, where mm-hmm. glories are going to be different, right? Some the, the glory of the resurrection All will be raised bodily, but as one star differs from another in glory, so is the resurrection of the dead. We'll be raised in different glories Mm -hmm. or weights. I don't think it's a leap to say that your reward corresponds to the glory of your resurrection. I I think it would be a leap and strange if it meant something else. Right. Okay, so how about this? Okay. I get the all. That's the same all all in 2 Corinthians as well as in Romans where they all... I could build a larger context where it has to be all. Go for it. When John the Apostle writes to the churches under his ministry, he points out that the way you guys do, my reward depends on it. Uh, He said, you know, you guys stay faithful Mm -hmm. so that we'll receive a full reward. I think the discussion of rewards has a special important meaning a more precise and focused meaning on those believers who realize that they're ministering spiritual things to others. When we look at 1 Corinthians and it tells us, be careful how you build, that's written to a builder. It talks about no foundation can other man lay than what is laid, and that's Jesus Christ. That's true in every individual life. 
But the overall context of that passage is the church, which is his body. And it has to do, he's a master builder. Uh, It has to do with the ministry in the local church of building the local church itself. So to an extent, every member contributes to the building of the local church, and it does actually have application to every single person. There's a way you can take that as building on the foundation that is in you to let every man take heed how he builds, Mm -hmm. wood, hay, stubble, gold, silver, precious stones. But there's this definite aspect, provable from Scripture, that you're building in the lives of others and that rewards can be tied together. I have to be careful how I build with Jared. You know, here we are together. We've walked together for a decade now, and we have to be mindful of how am I contributing to your life? How do you contribute to my, how, you know, this, uh, these one another's of scriptures are very, very important. And in how we do with one another in the ministry of the word uh, seems to be the most, can I say the sharpest focus of the building concept in scripture? So I do think that there, there is some greater point being made about the ministry of the word in in the discussion of rewards. So let me let me not go too far down that path to not get where you want to mm-hmm. where you want to get to with the whole question. But uh, I think that's an important aspect of rewards to really hunt down. Yeah. And so, and 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 and, and let me let me add something else. Now this comes out of both the scriptures and my experience. He that desires the work of an elder, not to be an elder, but the work of an elder, right? which is to shepherd the sheep, which requires teaching, because all shepherds are teachers, all teachers are shepherds, Right, desires a good work. It's the one work of Scripture that is commended. When I was a young fellow, I desired that work. And I came across this, turns out, ugly, jealous man who called that ambition and rather than give direction to it, which I don't think he could, I don't think he was actually capable and cultivating that that interest because, you know, God said to Peter, lovest thou me more than these? And uh, some people think he was talking about that when the Lord said these, he was talking about the other apostles, the other disciples. Okay, even so, if he was, which I don't think he was, I think he might have been talking more about the, the fish. He was still calling him to a higher calling to commit himself to feeding the sheep, mm-hmm. feed my lambs, feed my sheep. Rivalry and jealousy kept this man actually from the ministry itself. I don't, I don't believe that God really sent him into the ministry, as it turns out, but also prohibited him from cultivating and encouraging that desire. But why would God hold that desire to do that work out and make it rewardable and commend people to do it? if it wasn't something that needed to be cultivated, needed to be drawn out, needed to be rewarded mm-hmm. in order for it to be done. So where I'm going with this is, you see, there's there's a special blessings to the one who gives himself to that work, special rewards. Yeah, And I think a good amount of the scripture discussion of rewards results at the judgment seat has to do with this work that 
that I'm talking about. I think you see echoes of that also with Paul writing to the Philippians and to the Thessalonians. Absolutely. You know, with the Philippians, which you have a good bunch there. Right. Uh, and uh, there's some correction in there, but you have a pretty good bunch right there. In the, both the Philippians and, and the Thessalonians, mm-hmm. you got a good bunch. And with the Philippians, you know, he's calling them forward to, you know, drill deeper. Mm-hmm. Upward call. It's the higher calling, the epi, epi call. Right. And, of course, the Thessalonians, he's calling them together as a church to a higher standard. Then, for example, he couldn't even call the Corinthians to that. They weren't, they weren't of a state to be there. He was calling them to the, to the state of the Thessalonians. Right. He was calling Thessalonians higher. And, of course, that's what this resurrection that Paul was talking about in Philippians 3 that had gripped my mind so much, mm-hmm. the higher calling, the prize of the higher calling. Some would say higher, some would say deeper. They're the same. Yeah. Uh, More extreme. And, and so it's really a better resurrection than just the resurrection of the dead, as you know. Or the first resurrection, with all Christians, will enjoy the resurrection out from the dead. And then this one now, the out resurrection out from the dead. And this is the positive result. I tie this together to a positive result that's the judgment seat of Christ. All right, so let's get—we're back to the judgment seat here. Let's okay, talk about— we haven't about, discussed it. We've discussed a little bit of historicity. A little bit. In that we we think we've argued effectively that we're all there. that we're all there. It's a historical event. Yes. So two questions come out of that. The first okay. one, who's we? Because it's we all. Okay. Okay, and then we'll take these in order. And the second one then is when is this thing? Okay. So Paul says we all. We, we that are alive and remain— Okay. So these are all that are part of that event in Thessalonians 4. I will yes, and I will call that we all the dispensational body of Christ, okay? The body of Christ has two and only two Okay, well, let me say three, okay? <laughs> three <laughs> Which one is it? Three aspects only biblically speaking, okay? The body of Christ locally expressed or we call the local church, the church which is his body locally yeah. expressed. Okay? Yep. Then the second thing, and this is kind of a tweener, but we have churches. So it's important that you you be in a local church, which is his body, locally expressed. It's important for you to realize that God has churches. There's others. There's other churches mm-hmm. locally expressed. We could argue about what qualifies them, who they are, who they aren't. It can't be just one, because then we lose the locality part of it, We right? lose the geography, exactly. <laughs> and we can't lose that geography until God takes the geography away, which he will do one day when he calls us all together. But that that isn't merely geographical, which you might say takes care of length and breadth, but it's also historical, which takes care of depth. It's a 3D body mm. or dispensational church which is assembled together at the judgment seat of Christ. So these are historic churches, some of, some of which are historic, that must be accounted for in the Scriptures, just as are, we must be. Are increasingly, as I grow older, my brothers are dying, you know, including the sisters, and, uh, you know, will not prevent those who are asleep. So as they sleep, they're not going to be prevented by those of us who are alive and remain. We'll, we'll rise together. And that's what I mean by the dispensational church, all the way back to, you know, Peter, mm-hmm. we could say, and, and the other apostles. So why does we then preclude people not in the church? Why is it not we, for, I mean, could it be we, all people who believe, or could it be we, all humanity? 
Well, it can't be we all humanity because all humanity is divided into three parts. Just like Gaul, um, your early Latin. Oh, you didn't take Latin. I did not. You Spanish. Catholic high school. Hola. Well, in Julius Caesar, you learn that omnis Gallia is to visit and part his trays. <laughs> all of Gaul is divided in three parts? Nope. No idea what you're talking about. Okay. Classical illusion <laughs> for you. All of uh, humanity is divided into three parts. Okay. Jew, Gentile, Church of God. And when Paul says we, we have to understand, he's only going to be talking, when he says we, he's only going to be talking about two of those three. He's never going to say we, meaning the Gentiles. Mm-hmm. He's going to say we, meaning the Church of God, or in context, he's going to say we, meaning we Jews. Mm. Okay? Men, brethren. Well, we all is, in, the, in those hortatory senses in the epistles, is we Christians. Uh, the epistles are written to the Christians. Uh, the epistles are written to the believers. The Bible is written to the believers. Right. Not much written to the lost. It really isn't. Uh, the scriptures are written to the believers. You know, scriptures were never written to the Gentiles exactly. They were written to the Jews, and then the word of God was taken from the Jews and given to the Gentiles who believed them, and then they became neither Jew nor Gentile. That division between Jew and Gentile was broken down, literally broken down, with the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., right? Yeah. That, divi- that dividing wall is not, as you've been told in your Roman road gospel teaching, a wall between you and God. That's not what that wall was. That wall was between Jew and Gentile. Mm. That's what got broken down when the new man came in, the church, which is his body, a third piece of humanity. Jew, Gentile, Church of God. Okay. So let's we... Move, let's move on from we because we've got to get to when. We, we is... Dispensational Church, which is his body. Okay. So all of us. All, all the way of back, us. All the way back. All the way to whenever this happens. Now the when. I'm pretty sure it hasn't happened yet. Well, we're alive. <laughs> right. And he hasn't come, and we're not translated. I assure you, sitting here... I'm untranslated. <laughs> I felt a whole lot more untranslated about 20 minutes ago, but definitely still groaning. Yeah. Now, I, I'm still feeling very Romans 7 right now, and not very Romans 8. And uh, <clears throat> let me say that, uh, of course, for us all to assemble, it has to be a historical event. Now you're asking when, and it mm. hasn't happened yet. Right, so sometime in the future. But... So it's future from now. That's now I'm with you that far. It, now we've got it pretty narrowed down if you look at all of history. Mm-hmm. It's future from, you know, November of 2014. Right. So now maybe becomes the disputive or the, uh, can we say, just the argumentative part because uh, we're not appointed to wrath. That includes the wrath of God. That includes it's just wrath, period. The wrath of Satan which is going to come down at the time of Jacob's trouble. He'll have great wrath, knowing he has a short time. Mm -hmm. That's the last 42 months of the Daniel 70th week. That man of sin will be revealed in the middle of that. Actually, he'll be revealed to those who know at the beginning of those seven years when Mm -hmm. he confirms a covenant with the many. And that time won't come till there's a falling away first. Right. And the falling away is of the faith that Gospel of Luke says when the Lord returns, when the Son of Man returns, will he find the faith on the earth? And that's a rhetorical question. All rhetorical questions 
have implied answers. The Socratic method really capitalized on that, didn't it? Answer that. Uh, yes. Good yeah, one. Because that's a that's a rhetorical question. <laughs> what are you stupid? That's... Of course, your father asks. Well, the father when your father says to you, "What's the matter with you? Are you an idiot?" The answer to that is yes, Dad. I'm an idiot because. <laughs> Any other answer to that is going to be sassing back and make it worse. Right. So we use rhetorical questions. The Bible uses it all the time. Uh, the answer is implied. When the Son of Man comes back, will he find the faith? No, he won't. What's that mean? Does that mean that uh, we're gone? Or does that we're mean gone. That... We have to be gone or he'd find the faith. Okay. Not that we're assured of being faithful. It's just that he's assured of being faithful. Is that the failure of the faith or is that the removal of the faith? Both. Both. You know, I've lately been engaging some believers in discussion of the, you know, coming rapture, so-called, the harpezo, the snatching up, what the Bible terms the assembling together in the clouds, the episunagoge. We look forward to that. It's a grand event. It's a sobering event, because when we're assembled together, the judgment seat commences. And we should look at that in a sobering way, depending on our condition— we can either be bold at that time or we can be ashamed at that time. So some days maybe you're looking forward to it. Some days maybe you're going, oh, no, kind of dreading it. Better spend some time with God right now about this. Mm. But but that's uh, uh, a sobering time. And I believe that the Lord, because the, the falling away is going to be underway, I think it that the church enters into that assembly in a very failed condition here on earth. Meaning ineffective? Ineffective, no longer holding holding the light forward, no longer serving God's purpose. Mm -hmm. Just as Israel failed to serve God's purpose and God turned to the Gentiles to take a people out for his name, Jew and Gentile, when the transition back to Israel and God takes Israel off the back burner that it's on, and turn, takes up Israel once again, it's going to come at a time when the church and the churches are in a state of failure. And he takes those that remain home and assembles at the judgment seat and assesses who's qualified to rule and reign in his coming kingdom at the beginning of his parousia. So you, you, you want to know when? <clears throat> I believe that the judgment seat of Christ begins sometime before the final seven years of Daniel's prophecy, that 70th week, which has been in suspension since the Lord's death and resurrection. That clock will again begin to tick. Affairs on the earth will, evil men and seducers will have already waxed worse and worse, and then will get even worse and worse. The whole world, a deluding influence will be sent from God, a working of error. Instead of being fixed in the, in, the, in the heavens like stars, mankind will begin to spin like a planet, begin to move, be mm. movable. The Lord Jesus Christ will, will be so unknown, he'll have to reinstitute prophets to his people. He'll send two prophets for three and a half years to prophesy to the whole world, and he'll take up 144,000 into the heavens and spread them out through the whole world, like the like he did the Apostle Paul, take them up into heaven, personally meet with them, and commission them to to bring the word of God to the world. So I believe that the assembly 
of the church, which is his body in the clouds, is going to precede the time that he sends two prophets into Jerusalem to Israel. And so that the judgment seat of Christ takes place, begins to take place. How long it takes, I don't know. But begins to take place before the final seven years of this dispensation or Daniel's 70th week. I don't know if that locks it down good enough because there are specifics that could happen within that. Yeah, like how long before? Or... Yeah, like how long before and when the Lamb is qualified to open the book, as the book of Revelation teaches us, that's a scene apparently in the highest heaven, in the paradise of God, the third heaven. Has the Lord finished the judgment seat before he does that? Seems like he has. That you know, Did the Lord gather us together in the clouds in front of that event? I think so. Mm-hmm. and then open up those seals which end up being judgments upon the earth. Um, we have some hint of these things, of the precision of these things, in the book of Daniel, where the rising up of the fourth Gentile beast kingdom seems to coincide with the setting up of thrones mm-hmm. in the heavenly places. I don't know if when those thrones are set up, it appears that it isn't until three and a half years into that. I don't know if you wanted all this, but it appears that three and a half years into that last seven years takes place before Michael, the archangel, angel of Israel, rises up and sweeps the heavens clean of Satan and his minions and throws them down to the earth. There appears to be that war in heaven arising, maybe during that first three and a half years, while the Lord Jesus has already qualified his his own mm-hmm. to occupy the heavens. And I don't think that those heavens are going to be occupied until the Lord Jesus actually sets his foot down at the Mount of Olives. Really? No, I don't think the heavens are going to be occupied by the heavenly people until the Lord Jesus sets his foot down in Jerusalem. Well, where are we then in between there? Clouds. Not really. I think the cloud, yeah. You know, Which is the first heaven, or, I mean, what's that second mean? Second heaven. The clouds are the second heaven? Mm. You see, these are, <laughs> now, now you're getting precise, but these are good questions, aren't they? Yeah, I mean. You know, uh, uh, I I think so. You know, I, look, look, I, I just, uh, it, it's funny, just this morning I was struggling with, okay, we know there's three heavens, we know the third heaven is the paradise of God, what's the ceiling on the first heaven? Is it the firmament that was created on the second day, the expanse, into which were placed on the fourth day, the stars? Those are in the firmament. Is that the first heaven? Or actually settled on, I think that's the second heaven, and the first heavens, this air we're sucking as we walk around on the on the earth. Isn't that where the clouds are, though? They certainly seem to be, but these are special clouds. Okay. So this is this the the cloud, clouds themselves that term hearkens to the glory of the Lord, the Shekinah. Mm. So that's a special cloud. Where we are, I think, at that point, geographically, is one of those great puzzles to me. Mm-hmm. And then where's he? Right. When he begins his descent, you know, does he come with his mobile throne? There, 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 Ezekiel seems to indicate that the throne of God is mobile. You know, does heaven move with him? There's, there's many. Now you're asking me questions. Well, yeah. I just... 
So you, you opened up the can of worms. I just want to show you how many different worms there were. Let me finish with this thought, and it's only partially serious. In fact, not very much serious. But you know that there was this idea that uh, in order to to hurry along the, the Lord's coming, that we had to spread the gospel to the whole. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if we key in on that thing in Luke where when the Lord returns, will he find the faith on the earth? Isn't it kind of the opposite way? Like if we want to hurry it up, we just need to – that falling away just needs to happen here soon. So we, maybe we should be spreading that message that – Hurry up and fall away? <laughs> hurry up and fall away so the Lord can come. You know, the the good news about that bad news is that you don't need to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. It's already happening.